Thank you. Thanks, Sophia. Great. This is, a, this is a thrill and an honor that you, uh, you came out on a, a gloomy Tuesday night to hear me speak about what is an even gloomier subject. Um, I'll try to keep it as light as possible, but it really is a, a, a gloomy subject. Um, now, uh, I've been at UVA for 11 years. This is my 11th year. Uh, that's the same number of years that UVA has had a media studies department. Uh, and this has been uh, just one of the best relationships I've ever had in my life. Uh, I've had the honor of speaking to UVA clubs around the world. Uh, in fact, I think the first time I presented on what would become this book was to the UVA Club of London. Uh, I think that was March of 17. Uh, and um, I was very nervous. I really hadn't rolled out these ideas to anybody before. Uh, and I found out that several of the people in the audience were the parents of my students. Right, so the pressure was high at that point, right? Did not want to have negative reports coming back to my students. You know, what are we paying for? That guy, right? So, but it turned out well, it went well. Um, I had a really nice time, made some really great friends over there. Um, once the book came out, I, I, I presented this, uh, actually, well, before the book came out, I, I also presented many of these ideas to the uh, uh, UVA Club of New York City, uh, where I have a, a longstanding relationship and I, I do a program with them every year. Um, so that was a friendly audience. And then um, I gave a talk after the book came out in June, which is when the book came out, uh, to the UVA Club of San Francisco in the Bay Area. And I was a little bit nervous there because I knew that many UVA alums work at Facebook. Um, and what I found when I gave that talk was that, yes, there were four or five Facebook employees who were UVA alums who were at that talk. Uh, and uh, they were really open to what I had to say. Like, they were really good with me, and I was so grateful. They weren't mean, they weren't defensive, um, they seemed to agree with much or some of what I said. We had a really good conversation afterwards. Uh, and I think that says something about uh, the sort of person who comes into UVA and the sort of person who goes out of UVA and, uh, and the sort of openness and spirit of engagement um, uh, and calm deliberation that we, that we celebrate here. Now, calm deliberation is something that is deeply embedded in the Republican spirit, the small r Republican spirit, the sort of uh, habits of mind and habits of culture that Thomas Jefferson saw as so crucial to maintaining any semblance of democracy, any semblance that we the people might actually be able to responsibly govern ourselves. We can only responsibly govern ourselves if we are capable of having deep, measured, calm, informed conversation about the issues that face us. I know I'm not alone in expressing deep concern about our ability as a country, as a culture, to do that very thing in 2018. Now, that's not to say that we've ever had a great year, right? It's not to say we can say, oh, oh let me tell you, 1980, everything was glorious. It really wasn't, but I have to say, it was different. It was measurably different. It was significantly different. You could pick, I like to pick 1976. I was 10 years old in 1976, right? So 1976 was a really important year. I think we forget how important it was, not just because Bruce Jenner was on the cover of Wheaties Box and won the decathlon and was very different. Um, <laughs> That was, but that was really an important moment, right? That was an important moment where like, the Olympics in Montreal in 1976 had an American win the decathlon. It was a moment of great pride in our bicentennial year. 
It was coming right on the heels of Watergate and Vietnam, the, the most recent things that had really torn this nation apart. There was reason to believe, and again, I'm a 10-year-old at that point, There's reason, there was reason to believe up until that year that we might not make it through in a very healthy fashion, right, through the turmoil of the previous 10 years. And yet we did. Also in 1976, you might remember, we had an election where we had two parties with two reasonable, responsible, moral gentlemen who represented different visions for the country, and they presented their case to the American people, and the American people narrowly favored one over the other, and that's the way it's supposed to go, right? That's the way it's supposed to go. Uh, and I know I'm not alone in being nostalgic about when that could happen. Now that's all background to say that I don't know that we've necessarily declined to the point lower than the aftermath of the Vietnam War and Watergate, right? And the fraying of our social fabric and the distrust that was so high in this country at that point. But I do know that we made a comeback. I know we made a comeback, and I know it's been hot and cold since then. But what I'm concerned about now is mapping our way forward. And we, I'm convinced that we cannot map our way forward, that we can't heal and we can't fix the, the flaws and the tears in our social fabric unless we confront how we talk to each other. And how we talk to each other means how we engage politically, where we engage politically, and what systems will structure that political engagement. So that's really what informs uh, what I'm going to present to you today and informs my book, right? So my book is called Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. And that's a pretty strong claim. After all, Facebook is what connects us, right? It's what connects me to my cousin and, by extension, my cousin's daughter, who just graduated as the valedictorian of her high school and got a big scholarship to Texas A&M, which, as a University of Texas graduate, broke my heart. But nonetheless, I'm proud of her, right? But that's the kind of stuff we want to get out of Facebook. We want to know that the people we care about even people we don't maintain regular relationships with are doing good things and living good lives, right? We want to see their baby pictures and their puppy pictures, and we want to see their graduation pictures, and we want to know when they're sick and when they're down, and we want to be able to reach out and give them just a little bit of uh, empathy, right? That's what, it's, that's what Facebook was introduced to us to do, and that is still, I'm happy to say, what most of us do most of the time on Facebook or what we would like to do most of the time on Facebook. But here's the thing. We don't get to choose. Facebook chooses for us what we see when we engage with Facebook. By that, I mean your news feed. If you're looking at your Facebook page, the big column down the middle is your news feed. You don't get to pick what goes on your news feed. Facebook picks it for you. How does Facebook pick it for you? Facebook knows you thinks it knows you. It knows a lot about you. It can't know all your dimensions. It can't know ultimately what is deeply meaningful to you. It can't know you like a partner or a sibling or a parent will or your dog, right? Those, those are the important relationships. And that sense of knowing is, is what brings meaning in your life. Someone knows me. But we simulate that to the best of our ability at a distance through social media, specifically through Facebook. But Facebook decides by tracking our behavior what 
it thinks we want to see. So how does it do this? Well, Facebook is able to monitor everything you do when you interact with your computer. Facebook is able to monitor almost everything you do when you interact with your phone. That's surprising to many people, but you actually agreed to all of that when you signed up for Facebook. You just didn't read the 80 pages of fine print in lawyer terms that gave Facebook permission to track you in all these ways. Facebook also tracks your location. If you have any Facebook product, any Facebook application on your phone, meaning the Facebook app, the Facebook Messenger app, Instagram, WhatsApp, these are all owned by Facebook, Facebook will track you. Even if you've never signed up for Facebook and you have never, or, or you have signed up for Facebook and then you've canceled your account, Facebook has a profile of you. It has a dossier on you. It knows who you are. How did it do this? Because someone you know, maybe someone at this very, in this very room, at some point agreed to let Facebook upload his or her address book from his or her phone or email server. And when that happened, Facebook got your email. And when Facebook got your email, Facebook cross-listed your email with all the databases that it has, many of which it purchased from data marketing companies, from online marketing companies. So even if you never had a Facebook account, Facebook knows all about you and is ready for you for when you do. And Facebook expects that you will at some point, or an Instagram account, or a WhatsApp account, or a Facebook Messenger account. And even if you don't, Facebook's ready to market to you because Facebook positions advertisements on web pages outside of Facebook as well. So it, it has business in your business constantly. So this, this system of almost total surveillance is largely invisible to us. We are not supposed to know about the level of surveillance that Facebook puts us through. But we are supposed to, to the extent that we are aware of it, we are supposed to think it's innocent and harmless, that it will never be put to bad use by bad people. Because after all, Facebook is run by good people, right? I actually happen to think that Facebook is run by mostly good people. Most of the people at Facebook are good people. And they themselves think that their mission is to connect the world, is to bring us closer together, is to make us understand each other better. Remember, I said make us, right? Not let us, make us. Facebook is a social engineering company. Facebook has a mission and an agenda to structure your life in ways that Facebook would prefer. Facebook wants you to know more people and be more open about all your thoughts and feelings and dreams and heartbreaks to more and more people and more and more companies and advertisers and Facebook itself. But you're not supposed to know that part, okay? That's Facebook's mission. The people who work at Facebook from Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg on down truly believe that Facebook will make your life better. And the more you use Facebook, the better your life will be. That's pretty bold. Can you imagine founding a company, running a company at the age of 20 and deciding that your mission is to socially engineer the human species to treat itself better? Man, that's audacious. That's tremendous arrogance. You know, he didn't even have to graduate from Harvard to get that arrogant. That's amazing. That's amazing, right? So, so that's where we, that's the system we're interacting with. All we want to do is look at our niece graduate from high school. All we want to do is see the next puppy photo, right? But instead, 
well, the, the, in exchange, right, we're drawn into this system of massive surveillance and social engineering. Right, so Facebook knows all the stuff that you're interested in. Facebook has a deep record of the music you th you're into, the films you have watched, the publications you have linked to and brought into Facebook, which are proxies for all sorts of things. Your hobbies, your political views, your religious views, your social standing, your class standing, right? your income and wealth, all of those things, books, movies, publications, those are proxies for all sorts of things. In addition, Facebook not only knows what you click on in terms of the ads that Facebook puts out there, which are often uh, hard to differentiate from the other content on Facebook's newsfeed, but it knows what you've clicked on on the rest of the web, which is why you've probably had this experience. You, you're looking for dog food. I'm talking a lot about dogs tonight because I have one, so that's where my mind goes. By the way, you can follow her on Instagram, Golden Butter. Um, she has a great Instagram. Um, so, so yeah, you're, you're like you're looking around for dog food. Like the vet just told you that your dog gained five pounds, and you know that's not good because she's she's five years old now, and if she gained five pounds now, her hips are going to go out. This actually happened. This is the conversation my wife and I had today. Like, the, our golden retriever gained five pounds. We are not happy. This is bad news. So. I go clicking around for low-calorie dog food, right? What's the best dog food to, to start giving her now? Uh, and so I start clicking around, clicking around, clicking around, various pet food sites, searching on Amazon, right? Um, decide what I'm going to get, decide what I'm going to order, turn off the computer, go into the office, do some work, open up Facebook, and all my Facebook ads are for dog food. How does Facebook know that I was on all these sites looking for dog food? Well, it's because Facebook has what are called cookies little pieces of computer code that are embedded in your web browser, and, they are and those little pieces of computer code are tracking everything you do. Right? So again, Facebook has profiles of you. It knows your, your preferences. It knows your predilections and your prejudices. And it's ready to serve you up more and more of what Facebook thinks you have told it you're interested in. OK, let's pause there. How big is Facebook? And why am I talking about Facebook as opposed to Twitter, as opposed to Instagram, right? OK, Facebook has, and this is a number that should blow your mind, 2.2 billion users around the world. There is nothing in the world that touches 2.2 billion people except for water and oxygen. There are 7.4 billion people on Earth. 2.2 billion of them use Facebook regularly. That is stunning. The BBC has never reached 2.2 billion people. The Wall Street Journal's never reached 2.2 billion people. CNN's never reached 2.2 billion people. Even Google and YouTube have not reached 2.2 billion people with that regularity. That should freak you out. There is something in this world that, that, that decides what people see, not consistently, not with some standard decision making, but still decides what people see, 2.2 billion people. Here's the other thing, in more than 100 languages. 2.2 billion people in more than 100 languages. That's, that's never happened in human history. So we, you know, like we just got Facebook not so long ago. It probably entered your life or my life, or at least your awareness, around 2007. 2007 is when it broke out of the college and university milieu. Uh, between 2004, when it was invented, and 2006, it was largely exclusively used by 
people affiliated with colleges and universities, you had to have a .edu email address to sign up. And in the early days, Facebook was opening its service um, campus by campus across the Northeast and then added Stanford and Berkeley and then added UVA, I think, in late 2005. And it was rolled out largely uh, from elite colleges um, to less elite colleges through it. Uh, and that was uh, strategic in two ways. One, Mark Zuckerberg wanted it to have a sense of exclusivity early on before it had a sense of universality. He thought you build, you build interest with exclusivity and then you bring it universal once it's already adopted as something everyone should be in interacting with if you want to know where the party is or if you want to know where the lecture is. Right? Many of you might have found out about this on Facebook, in fact. Right? So, so all of those services, he was, he was really smart to build it that way. But the other thing was he didn't want too many people joining Facebook all at once because one of the problems with early social media services, and Facebook was like number five or six in these, in these experiments of social media services. One of the problems with the early ones is they got too popular too fast and all their servers crashed as everyone started piling on and trying to pull on it. So we avoided that by steadily growing. But then by 2007, he had the money and he had the infrastructure to go big. And that's when you probably heard, hey, why don't you join Facebook? You, know, you, can, you can follow a friend from high school. Um, and then the real growth in the United States was between 2007 and 2011. And that, in 2011, is really when it started taking off in the rest of the world. Now, here's the theme of my book. If you wanted to invent a propaganda system to promote nationalism and authoritarianism, you could not invent one better than Facebook. This is where it gets dark, I have to warn you, right? No more puppies for a while. So here's the deal. What do nationalist movements and authoritarian movements want? Well, they want us to be distracted and despaired, despairing, right? Those movements, those leaders want us not to have faith and trust in each other or faith and trust in our institutions. They want us to be suspicious and they want us to be fractured and they want us to recoil into our shells, shells of our neighborhoods, shells of our of our, uh, of our ethnic groups, shells of our religious groups, right? They want us to fear, to fear each other and mostly to fear others, right? Others we don't know. If you can fracture a society like that, if you can create fear and distrust like that, if you can constantly barrage people with stimuli so that they don't have time to think deeply or deliberate calmly in any serious way about any serious matter, the authoritarians win. That is how they take control and maintain control. They don't do it through force of arms, at least at first. They do it by getting people to give up on the potential of self-governance, to give up on the potential of having a broad sense of citizenship and a broad sense of engagement. This is happening all over the world. It's happening all over the world. And here's the thing, all over the world, the authoritarians and the nationalist movements have chosen Facebook as their, as their media system, as their propaganda system. And it works beautifully. How does it work beautifully? I will get to that. All right, the problem with Facebook is Facebook. I mentioned the scale of Facebook, 2.2 billion people in more than 100 languages. Here are two other aspects of Facebook 
that are essential to Facebook. These are what makes Facebook, these are the things that make Facebook Facebook. The scale, right? The sense of universalism. Mark Zuckerberg's dream was to get everybody on Facebook and have everybody use Facebook for as many hours of the day as possible. And he's getting close to his dream. Still hasn't cracked China. That's like the big, the big untapped market. But the second thing I want you to think about with Facebook is a system that I call algorithmic amplification. I said Facebook chooses what you see. You don't choose what you see. Facebook makes those decisions based on the data it has about you, the record it has about you. But Facebook has algorithms that double down on your interests and double down on your passions and double down based on what people have shown interest them. So let's just sort of lay it out in a rough way. Let's say you have 40 friends with whom you regularly engage, you regularly interact with on Facebook. These are the 40 friends whose items they post show up most often in your timeline, in your newsfeed. The 40 friends who are most likely to comment on your Facebook posts. The 40 friends most likely to click like when you put a picture of your golden retriever up there. These are the 40 friends Facebook has noticed you choose to interact with and then has narrowed your field of friends down to, right, sort of synergistically. Oh. Siva likes these 40 friends. Well, let's make sure that most of his feed comes from these 40 friends. That's, after all, what he likes. We don't want to bore him with all these other people in his life he doesn't like or he doesn't care that much about. Right? So Facebook's discriminating for you and for me based on signals we have sent. But here's the other thing. The other signals that we get are called engagement. Clicks, shares, likes, and comments. If you put something up on Facebook, Facebook has a way of predicting whether that item is going to get lots of engagement. It knows it based on some of the keywords and the thing, but it also knows it based on past performance. If something from a particular news service or something from a particular page or something from a particular um, uh, a blogger or some kind of um, expression has over time generated a lot of clicks and shares and likes and comments, Facebook's going to say, oh, this is hot. We're going to make sure this shows up in a lot of people's news feeds. And what generates strong, lots of engagement? Things that generate strong emotions. Emotions like joy, emotions like sadness, emotions like indignation, emotions like disgust, fear, right? All the strong passions. And these passions are part of what make life interesting, what make life worth living, but sometimes that's really not how you want to work through some stuff, right? So, so, okay, let me give you an example. If I go home tonight and I find, I, I look on the web page of The Economist magazine, and I see an article that's a really interesting analysis of how the Italian coalition government right now is challenging the authorities in Germany uh, for how European monetary policy should go for I know some of you are asleep already. That's okay. I don't take it personally. I teach 19-year-olds. They fall asleep all the time. All right. So look, I, I think this article is really interesting. I'm really into Italian politics. I'm really into my I'm really not. I'm just saying that. Right. But I, I say, oh, you know, this is really important because it is important. Right. How, how, the, how valuable the euro is has effects on all kinds of things around the world, including how much money we all make in our retirement accounts, two or three degrees away. But it's an important issue. It's not an issue we're passionate about, but it is an issue of significance 
and importance in our life. So I decide I'm going to take this article, I'm going to post it on Facebook. Well, you know, I have a lot of Facebook friends, and maybe two or three of them are really into Italy, or maybe two or three. Actually, someone in this, my friend of mine in the audience here is really into Italy. Um, so she might like it. She might, she might click on it, right? Uh, and uh, someone else in my friend group might be really into you know, monetary policy. I don't know who that friend would be, but let's say I have that friend, right? That friend clicks on it, maybe shares it to, to his or her timeline. But that's about it, right? Nobody's going to comment on it and say, this is madness. Or, you know, why are you posting this? Or, this is great. This makes me so happy, right? Because it doesn't. And so it doesn't generate the long string of comments. But let's say then, a few minutes later, I decide I'm going to poke around in some of the darker corners of medical advice on the, on, the, on the web. You've probably done it. Bad news, right? You find all kinds of crazy crackpot stuff. There's no shortage of that. So let's say I find an article saying, you know what, vaccinations will cause autism in kids. A totally untrue, totally BS thing, but it flies around the world very easily. I decide to post that on Facebook. I will get hundreds of comments within an hour. My friends will tell me I'm so wrong, I'm so off, I'm hurting babies, how could I do this? They'll post links to the Centers for Disease Control. They'll post links to the Mayo Clinic. They'll post peer-reviewed articles showing me how wrong I am. And you know what, every time someone tells me I'm wrong on Facebook, that makes Facebook think, this is a really hot article. I'm going to spread this to more and more news feeds. You can't argue with the crazy on Facebook. Algorithmic amplification means the bigger the engagement, the bigger its impact. So that means that the stuff that is extreme, the stuff that is deep, weird, crazy, harmful conspiracy theories, bad medical advice, bad political analysis, just Bad people being bad to other people. That stuff flies on Facebook, right? So the puppies fly and the baby pictures fly, but so does the hate speech, so do the conspiracy theories, so do terrible, terrible medical advice columns. That stuff lives forever on Facebook. It goes on everybody's site. So look, let's say Facebook then, because of all these comments, almost all of which are negative, puts it on hundreds of people's news feeds. Someone out there is going to say, oh, that's interesting. I might actually consider that or believe that. And then that person shares it, and then it starts all over. And then it cascades up. That algorithmic amplification is something we've never had in any other media form ever. No human being is making these choices. A human being or a set of human beings at a distance made a choice to favor engagement, that's the term they use, specifically comments, over other things they could have chosen. But that was at a distance. That wasn't deciding we're going to make sure that uh, you know, bad information about vaccines is going, to, is going to fly around Facebook. Nobody made that decision. They just made a decision about engagement. So algorithmic amplification. Again, scale, algorithmic amplification. The third thing is Facebook has created the best advertising system in the history of the world. It is so good. It solves the problem that advertising has been trying to solve for 200 years. You might, if you watch Mad Men, one thing you'll come away with is advertising is entirely a faith-based industry. It is, it is a bunch of people in suits trying to sell people who sell things on the way to sell things. And there's no science behind it, right? There wasn't for the longest time. No numbers behind it, no science behind it. You know, you might, if you have a company and you decide to buy a Super Bowl ad, and you see that after the Super Bowl ad, sales of your cola went up a little bit. You might safely conclude that I bought this ad and therefore my sales went up. But you can't really know. 
because you don't know if the people who bought the ad or, the, or bought the cola are the same people who saw the ad. And you don't know what percentage of the people who saw the ad actually bought the cola. So you don't know if you spent all that money for nothing and just got lucky or spent all that money and got a really good result out of it. And the more niche your product is, right, the more specialized your product is, the harder it is to advertise. Just take one example. If you're in the dog food business, you do not want to be selling to people who have cats and vice versa, right? That is a waste of your advertising money. Some people are both dog and cat people, and if there's some people here, that's cool. Like, we're all good with that. But, you know, it generally, if you're in the advertising business, you, or in the dog food business or the cat food business, you want to sell to one or the other. So you're not wasting money. And that's always been the trick. How do you find the people? Well, Google and then Facebook found the way. And that way is that thing I told you about, all that surveillance. Hitting Facebook knows, just like Google knows, that you are a dog person or a cat person or a parakeet person. And, and knows, you might be all three and it knows that too, right? So that means to an advertiser, why would I spend $100,000 buying a full page in Time Magazine or a quarter page in the New York Times or spend $1,000 on a quarter page in the Daily Progress when I can buy an ad on Facebook or Google and make sure I only reach people who care about my product? who've expressed interest in my product, as opposed to the scattershot thing, which was basic advertising. Right? It makes standard old advertising kind of a, a sucker's bet. And it's no wonder that the institutions that have depended on advertising for two centuries are, growing, are going broke fast. And that means, of course, we get, we're defunding journalism, among many other things. And we're defunding deep journalism, especially the expensive journalism. right? Uh, newspapers and magazines used to run such a surplus on advertisements because the advertisers had no choice. Like, well, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna have a Labor Day sale at the Chevrolet Chevrolet dealer, I better buy a full page ad in our local newspaper. I have no other way of telling people about our Labor Day sale, right? That was the only game in town, literally. So that meant that every Labor Day, newspapers would make a surplus. That surplus would last the next two months until the Thanksgiving, the day after Thanksgiving sales. And that would pay for all the sports reporters. And it would pay for the bridge column. And it would pay for the lifestyle reporters. And it would pay for the gossip columnists. And all of that stuff that you may or may not read, but it all got funded by that surplus. All that's gone now. right? This is why newspapers are going broke, because of Facebook and Google. Because all that advertising money is going to Facebook and Google. It's totally rational. right? But it's undermining our public sphere. It means we have less good journalism to work with. Um, and it also means that journalists and editors and publishers have to pander to Facebook. That game of trying to generate content that generates strong emotion, that's the only way to get noticed on Facebook, and everybody knows it. So every newspaper journalist, every editor, every publisher is trying to structure the pictures and the headlines and the first paragraph of every story to try to hook people to generate emotion or curiosity, to get those clicks, to get those likes, to get those comments, because that's what will make stuff thrive on Facebook. That means all these journalistic organizations are pandering to Facebook, and Facebook's taking all their money. right? They're feeding the beast that starves them. So when I say the problem with Facebook is Facebook, those three things, advertising, algorithmic, amplification, and scale, that is what makes Facebook Facebook. And all the problems that you've heard about or read about about Facebook in the last two years, problems with propaganda, problems with foreign interference, problems with complete falsehoods flying around Facebook, problems with data, like our personal data, 
getting out into third-party hands like this company, Cambridge Analytica, you may have heard of. I'll talk about it a little bit in a minute. Right? All of that stuff that you've heard about with Facebook, none of that is Facebook having a problem at the margins. None of that is some sort of thing that can be fixed. Every one of those problems is an example of Facebook working as designed. The problem with Facebook is Facebook. So here is an illustration of the scale, by the way, just so you get a sense. Uh, I, most of you can't see these numbers, but you can see the big line. That's 2.2 billion. The next one is YouTube, 1.9 billion, which is pretty heavy. I could have written a whole book about YouTube. 2011, I published a book about Google. At the time, YouTube was interesting but not dominant. It wasn't like this. Now it's a whole thing in the world. And if I were to write that book now, YouTube would take up about half the book. Um, and then WhatsApp is next. WhatsApp has about 1.5 billion people. And then Facebook Messenger comes next, 1.3 billion people. And then WeChat. WeChat is a, a social media service that's pretty much only used in China. And it's the dominant one in China. And pretty much no non-Chinese social media services can operate in China. So it's its own market in its own world. And so you can pretty much take it out of this if you're thinking about the rest of the world. And next is Instagram at about a billion. So number one, number three, number four, number five. Four of the top five social media platforms in the world are owned by Facebook because Facebook owns WhatsApp, Facebook owns Instagram, and Facebook owns, obviously, Facebook Messenger and Facebook. That's a tremendous amount of dominance in the market. This is another reason why we can't just sit around and wait for Facebook to face a competitor. The only viable competitor is WeChat, and WeChat has not yet moved beyond the People's Republic of China, um, and it's unlikely to anytime soon. It's more likely that Facebook's actually going to get into China than WeChat leaves it. Um, then you can go down, like the, these are, the rest are a bunch of different services available in different parts of the world. Twitter has 330 million users only. I know it sounds like a big number. It's actually a pretty small number in, these, in, the, in this kind of market. Twitter's really not that important. It's only important in the sense that it's part of the ecosystem. So stuff that shows up on Twitter will often um, uh, spark reporters' interests or editors' interests, and they will write about something on Twitter. And then, then that news report will end up on Facebook. Right? So it's all about a chain of influence and a, and a whole integrated ecosystem. Right? So the president will tweet something. People will react to it. The reaction will be positive or negative or mixed or both. It's usually both. It'll be big and extreme. And then there'll be news stories. Can you believe what the president tweeted? And then that news story ends up on Facebook. It's also important to know that the president's, President Trump's tweets do show up directly on Facebook frequently as well because he has a tremendous Facebook following. Um, so uh, the other social media services are basically um, uh, small fractions of Facebook. <clears throat> now this is Mark Zuckerberg's vision for the world. And it has been something like this since the beginning. He said this in 2016. This idealistic vision, as I said, it's social engineering, right? This idealistic vision assumes, first of all, that we're not together, that we should be together, and that by bringing people together and giving us a voice and ensuring free flows of ideas and cultures across nations, that we will live better and treat each other better. Thousands of years of human history notwithstanding. 
right? It turns out human beings have a tremendous capacity for cruelty. And sometimes when you bring people together, they're mean to each other. Sometimes they're violent to each other. Sometimes they misunderstand each other almost willingly, right? Almost obviously. And these are massive problems that writers and thinkers and religious figures have been trying to wrestle with for 5,000 years. And here comes Mark Zuckerberg, two years at Harvard, builds a platform and thinks he's going to fix the problem that you know, the apostles couldn't fix, right? I mean, like, people have been working on this stuff for a long time. And, and yet, this, I mean, this hubris is stunning. It's truly stunning. All right, what does Facebook do? I, I, you know, I talked a bit about the surveillance. I talked about the algorithmic engagement. But fundamentally what it does is it structures our interactions with people and ideas, right? As I said, it chooses for you. Oh, by the way, this is Butter. Um, this is Butter, obviously, the day, I, the day that we adopted her, which was now five years ago. This is a, a photo I've been using for a year. Um, and uh, I always have to throw this in because everything else about the presentation is dark and really gloomy, right? But Butter makes everyone happy. Um, yeah, she's now like, she's like 60-something pounds, five, year, five pounds too heavy. Bad news. So uh, yeah, as I found out today. All right. So yeah, so this is one thing Facebook does is it throws memories up at, at us often. This thing came up after I had been logged off of Facebook for a couple months. Often I will take some time off from Facebook if I have a writing deadline or I'm just, I feel myself getting too mean or too frazzled, right? Which, I, you know, I'm sure you've had this experience whether you're on Facebook or not. Like, you just like get a little frazzled in your life and you, and you know you're saying the wrong things to people so you back off, right? Maybe you, maybe you don't go to that card game, you know, with people you like just because you know you're in a bad mood, right? And Facebook's like that. It makes you in a bad mood all the time. So sometimes I take a couple months off, right? So I took a couple months off, and I logged back on. This is the first thing I saw. And I'm like, oh, Facebook, you are totally playing me. First of all, you're throwing at me one of the sweetest memories of my life, right? Um, and since I got married pre-Facebook, it doesn't have any of my wedding photos. Um, and actually, my kid was born pre-Facebook, so we don't have any, like, really, really young baby photos, like birth photos up there. So, so this is all it could give me, right, in terms of like major life experiences. And it knew. It nailed it, right? How did it know? Because under this photo, there are something like 300 comments. Because this comes up every year on this date, by the way, right? Facebook knows, hey, this is the day that you got butter, so I'm going to put this. I mean, it probably doesn't know even butter's name. But it knows that this is the big, this is like the big hit. This is the one thing I posted on Facebook that has generated more comments and more reaction than anything else for good reason. Uh, and uh, so Facebook just knows this is the big hit in your life. You know, but, but it doesn't know what it is, right? Facebook's computers don't know what's in the photo. It doesn't have an algorithm that senses fluffy golden retriever hair. It just knows it's got a lot of reaction. So what a lot of people are experiencing is something very different from what I experience every October when this pops up in my newsfeed. And that is, what if the one thing you posted that got the most comments was a funeral, right? Or a remembrance to someone who passed away whom you care about deeply, which is a very common experience. People use Facebook to mourn with their friends and often to honor people publicly. And this happens very frequently. And so Facebook is now developing ways to distinguish between the mourning uh, items and the other celebratory items. So they're working on that because they've seen a lot of people go, oh man, I didn't want to be reminded. 
of, you know, of, my, of my partner's death or my uncle's death in this way, in this way, right? I mean, there are more personal ways to, 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 rem to remember those moments. Um, so it's a very clumsy system, right? Even still, as, 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 as effective as it tries to be in terms of social engineering and structuring our experience, it can still be very clumsy. All right, this is how much money Facebook's making. Uh, as of 2017, that blue line is revenue. The black line is profits. You can see a steady increase. Facebook hit a bit of a bump in market capitalization this summer. It lost about 25% of its market capitalization, but that's only because the growth in revenue slowed. It still made significantly more than that $40 billion, I'm sorry, $40 million. No, that's $40 billion. That's $40 billion. Sorry, $40 billion, right? It made significantly more than that $40 billion in 2018. But the growth rate was slightly slower. So markets around the world uh, knocked it down a bit. Um, so when you hear things about Facebook having financial trouble, no, they don't have financial trouble. They're just not growing like they did in the early years, but nothing does. But where are they growing? They're growing in, in other parts of the world, not the United States. Now here's how the advertising system works, just to give you a sense. If you want to buy an ad on Facebook, first of all, you don't have to pay for an ad that no one clicks on. What a great deal. You don't have to pay for an ad that doesn't work. That is the best deal. Secondly, what you do when you choose an ad is you choose the categories of people you want to see this ad. So this is someone who has decided to buy an ad and has decided that starting out, uh, whoever's buying this ad is choosing all the people in the United States. By the way, the United States has 220 million Facebook users. In contrast, and that's number two in the world, by the way. Number one in the world is India with 250 million. And just to put that in context, 220 million is about 69% of the adult population in the United States. 250 million in India is only one quarter of the adult population of India. So there's so much more potential growth in India. Anyway, so first this, this person decides to start out with the United States, and then decides to narrow it down to only a handful of metropolitan areas uh, Los Angeles, within 25 miles of Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Austin, and Seattle. Those are the cities this person is. So this looks like the tech industry, right? These are tech-based cities. Um, in addition, um, this person wants to narrow the ad to people who have expressed interest in the following things. Advertising, search engine marketing, pay-per-click, social media optimization, or search engine optimization. So obviously, looking for people in the web advertising business or the online advertising business. They, this ad also, and this probably is a job ad, is looking for people who have job titles like founder, CEO, or co-founder. Now here's where it gets interesting. This ad only goes to single people. That's weird. Married people who are CEOs of companies in Los Angeles who are interested in search engine optimization or advertising don't get to see this ad. Oh, and then it gets weirder. Ages 24 to 32. Apparently, a 33-year-old CEO will never see this ad. A 33-year-old married CEO is not whom they want for this job. And then, only men, only males get to see this. By the way, this is a violation of federal employment law. To exclude women from a job ad is a clear violation of the law. It happens all the time on Facebook. 
In addition, if you ran a real estate ad on Facebook, you could choose not to reach anybody who is Jewish. You could choose not to reach anyone who is Latino. Facebook has allowed that kind of drop-down menu and exclusion. It calls it filtering, right? Because you're trying to narrow the audience because you don't want to buy a bigger ad than you need, right? You're trying to save yourself money. But Facebook provides all these categories. Because look, sometimes you're selling things to Latinos. Sometimes you're selling things to Jewish people. So you want to be able to say, I want a, uh, an audience that's predominantly Jewish here. So I will, I will pick that, right? That's how Facebook justifies it. But in a negative sense, look, here's a job ad that excludes all women from this ad. And only people who speak English, that, that kind of makes sense, because like, the ad's going to be in English. So that's not so bad. But this person narrowed the population of the United States from 2.2, I'm sorry, from 220 million people to 6,700 6, people. That's a manageable audience. And then the person will then design the ad, upload some photos. You can even run uh, different versions of the same ad and see which one works better. And this is exactly how political campaigns do it, by the way. So one of the interesting things about the Donald Trump campaign in 2016, you may have noticed if you, uh, if you, you standard, follow standard political journalism, there's a lot of focus on uh, on-air uh, on advertising, like uh, television ads and radio ads, uh, how much each candidate is spending on television ads in each state. It's a real easy thing for political journalists to track. And so it's, that's how they often discern which states are in play and which states the campaigns are trying to expand to or contract from, right? And the story we got in September 2016 was Hillary Clinton is spreading the map. She's buying ads in Arizona. And then even uh, early October, she was buying ads in Texas, right? And this was probably a head fake to try to get the Republicans to spend more money in Texas. Um, but nonetheless, like Hillary Clinton had so much more money than Donald Trump, so she could afford to buy ads. Um, she didn't buy ads in Michigan. Big mistake. But nonetheless, what happened was Trump the whole time wasn't buying very many ads anywhere on TV. And everybody was like, what is he doing? Like, he must, he must know he's going to get crushed, right? He must know. And he's just given up. He's just trying to sit on the money, right? He'll have a big party when it's all over, right? That was what people thought. Like, and they thought, and one of the things they knew about Trump was that, um, and you might remember this, in spring of 18, he, once he was uh, clearly... Uh, uh, nailing down the nomination, he could not hire any experienced Republican operatives. Um, they all shunned him. They all didn't want to be uh, sullied by uh, affiliating with him. So the only person with any political experience that Trump was able to hire um, was Paul Manafort. And that turned out to be a big mistake, right? And, and, he, and Manafort hadn't run a campaign since 1996. So he, you know, he had run campaigns in a very different uh, political environment and media environment, right? So, so what did Trump's people know? Well, all the people who worked for him basically had worked for his companies, right, for the Trump Organization. And the one thing they knew was Facebook marketing, because that's how Trump Stakes and Trump University and all those companies had found customers. And in the case of Trump Stakes, almost no customers. But that's how they did their work, right? They did it because Facebook is so much cheaper. And look, anybody who's involved in marketing these days knows put your money in Facebook. So nothing revolutionary about that. It's just that Trump's staff had beginner's mind, right? They didn't know how to run campaigns, so they didn't know how not to run a campaign. And they, they, they knew that their boss was pretty cheap and didn't want to spend a lot of money. Uh, and so using Facebook made sense. So what did they do? They used this system to very carefully and precisely target ads. They would structure an ad to appeal to 
one particular issue and one particular subgroup, maybe an age group and a religious group uh, and an interest group in Florida, right? They might know that, they might be able to identify um, Florida voters who care about gun rights, who have uh, maybe not voted in the last two presidential elections. And maybe you can find 10,000 of them in a state as big as Florida. What, eight, eight, 10 million people in Florida? I forget how many, right? It's a big state. You could probably find you know, a couple thousand people who fit that description, people who care deeply about gun rights, haven't voted, right? So they're, they're hard to motivate, they're unlikely voters. But they do care about this one thing. And then you can tailor an ad saying, you know, oh, you really need to get out and vote for Donald Trump because of gun rights right now, right? This is urgent. And you try different versions of the ads and you see what gets the most clicks. And you know, maybe you move a few non-voters into the voting column for Donald Trump. And maybe you're able to identify a couple of people who have traditionally voted, maybe a few thousand people in Florida who traditionally voted Democratic, maybe voted for Barack Obama, but, but you're able to sense that they're dissatisfied for whatever, they fit a profile, and you're able to move a few thousand from being potential Hillary Clinton voters to being potential Donald Trump voters. And then the other thing, and the Trump campaign, by the way, was very clear about this, that you can identify people and dissuade them from voting as well. So they bragged about the fact that what they, one of the things they did in Florida was they um, ran ads in French uh, for people of Haitian descent, mostly men of Haitian descent, and they reminded men of Haitian descent that Bill Clinton went down to Haiti after the last earthquake and uh, marched around and said everything was gonna be great and he'd raise a bunch of money and then nothing ever got better in Haiti. So that was a real sore spot to people of Haitian descent and that was probably effective in convincing a few thousand potential Hillary Clinton voters of Haitian descent Maybe don't go vote, you know? Maybe stay home. So Florida went for Donald Trump by 110,000 votes. That's about the same number of people as can fit in the University of Florida football stadium. That's nothing, that's razor thin. Florida has been more razor thin, has had sharper razors, including this week, but still 110,000 votes is really small. So, so among the various things that moved voters one way or the other, or moved voters to the polls and and home, right, there were a hundred different phenomena. But, but the Trump campaign, and Brad Pascal, who ran Trump's digital operations and is now gonna run the 2020 campaign, has been very clear about that. That he, he claims that they won because of Facebook. So think about this. They did the same kind of targeted operation in Wisconsin, in Michigan, and in Pennsylvania. Those three states that decided the Electoral College, Trump got 80,000 more votes than Clinton across those three states. 80,000 people, that would not even fill up the Penn State football stadium. That's how close those three states were. So all it took was for a few thousand people here and there to be moved from one column to another or just not vote, or vote if they usually don't, right? Those three dynamics. So you could say it's a really brilliant campaign, and it kind of was from the point of view of political campaigns. It was never done before like this, right? Everyone thought that the Obama 2012 campaign was some kind of you know, digitally savvy campaign. That was nothing compared to this. But in some ways, it wasn't so savvy because it's what any good marketer would do unless that marketer had run campaigns before and had been trained to do things differently. So that's how the advertising system works. All right, well, the other thing that we saw is that <laughs> the Trump campaign wasn't the only campaign running ads on Facebook. By the way, uh, Facebook embedded staff, Facebook staff in the Trump campaign to help them do that targeting. 
like help them identify subgroups and structure ads for those very subgroups. They basically worked as consultants with it. Um, and they offered the same service to Hillary Clinton and the Clinton campaign turned them down. So that was one of the many choices that affected how this thing went. Now, one thing we know is that there were foreign influences and, uh, and we don't know the extent of the influence, right? The extent of the effect, but we know it existed. And what's happened in this past election in the United States is that Facebook has done all it can to filter out foreign influences. It now insists that you show that you live in the country in which you're buying the political ad. Uh, and that's one of the many things that Facebook has done for this election. But Facebook's really only been doing it country by country. Um, and of course, one of the things that these foreign ads, especially the Russian purchased ads were doing, was basically trying to rile up emotions, a very effective thing to do. Now, Facebook is, as I said, extremely active in India. Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, is the most popular Facebook politician in the world. He has more followers than anybody. In 2014, he ran his entire campaign on Facebook. It's essentially the, 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 the uh, prototype for running this kind of campaign. And Modi is one of those authoritarian and nationalist leaders who's using Facebook so effectively. But nobody's used it more effectively than Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, who ran for office in early 2016. In February, he won his election. Came out of nowhere. He'd been a mayor before. But he ran his entire campaign on Facebook. And one of the things he did was, and it, this is something that no one in the United States has done yet, in addition to using basic advertising and propaganda methods to uh, stir up your support and, and reduce your opponent's support, um, uh, Duterte and Modi before him have entire armies of trolls who are uh, intent on harassing opposition and critics. So journalists and uh, uh, human rights organizers, LGBTQ uh, advocates, they all get harassed with rape threats and death threats and kidnapping threats constantly. And that totally, that makes them incapable of doing their jobs. They're constantly worried about their security. So that is one of their methods they're using to totally break up society, in addition to constantly undermining faith and trust in society. Okay, so what's going on? I'm gonna skip past a whole bunch of this so I wrap it up. What's really going on here is that, I'll skip past this, this is kind of where he wants to go. Um, this is his vision for the future, by the way, virtual reality. Uh, that we all put on our goggles and live in a Facebook structured world. Um, and this is, by the way, an official Facebook photo. Like the company put this out because they thought this is some sort of positive vision of the future. Um, okay, so what's really going on here and why does all this ultimately matter? Uh, the fact that Facebook is increasingly the, not only the way we interact with other people for more hours and hours a day all the time around the world. It is also structuring what we know about the world and how we engage with each other. Now remember, I said it's really difficult for deep, thoughtful, deliberative, well-researched material to survive on Facebook, to reach people on Facebook, but really easy for wacky or extreme or angry stuff to reach people. What that does over time is limit our ability to engage with each other in a meaningful way. It limits our ability to engage with each other in a respectful way. It certainly limits our ability to take things seriously. We find it increasingly hard to even agree on what our challenges are, let alone map a path forward to confront the real challenges we have in our life. 
Now again, I don't want to be Pollyannish about the past. I don't want to be nostalgic about the past. But in 1969, when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, it was on nightly news every night. It was on the front page of every paper in America. And over the next three years, Americans had serious discussions about how to make sure that we never have rivers catch on fire in this country again. And a Republican president in 1971 signed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and started the Environmental Protection Agency as a result. And since then, rivers have not caught on fire. We haven't been great at protecting our environment, but things are a lot better. Maybe this week accepted, but the air is pretty clean in LA, right, most of the time. And that's something we never would have expected in 1971, but it's happened, right? We, have, we don't have new Superfund sites, and rivers are not catching on fire. Because we took that problem seriously. As grown-ups, we took the problem seriously. We agreed there was a problem. Nobody in 1969 said, you know what? I don't think the river's really on fire, right? I mean, if someone did, that person was so marginal in the conversation, we never heard it, and it never mattered. Well, guess what? The whole world's on fire now. Like, the biggest problem we've ever faced as a species is that the whole world is on fire such that our ice is melting, right? It's the biggest problem we face. It's going to mess with our kids and our grandkids in ways we can't even begin to imagine. And we can't even get to step two. Step two would be, let's have a plan to figure out how to address it. We can't even take the problem seriously because we can't get everyone to just say, yeah, it's happening. Evidence is clear. Scientists are united. Let's move forward and let's have a debate. Do we want market-based interventions? Do we want government-based interventions? Do we want some mix of it? Like, what should our standards be? Let's figure out a way forward. Let's figure out how to experiment. But let's get to it. We can't even get to that. We can't get past step one. Now, Facebook's not responsible for this problem, but Facebook amplifies and exacerbates this problem. Because the more we perform our politics through Facebook, the worse we get at thinking seriously, like grown-ups, about serious things. Now, what am I suggesting? I don't think we're going to turn off Facebook. I don't think Mark Zuckerberg can turn off Facebook. What I'm suggesting is that we get better at supporting the institutions that do help us think, that do help us deliberate, that do help us recognize the humanity in people, even when we disagree. What are those institutions? Well, you're sitting in one, right? Universities are a big part of that. Supporting universities in all the ways that they encourage deliberation, deep thought, serious thought, scholarship, and debate. Supporting journalism, real journalism. Even figuring out new and better ways to fund it now that the advertising business is gone. We need to have serious, deep journalism that earns our trust, that we can criticize when it's worthy of criticism, but not dismiss in a gut way. Because we can't live without it. We can't govern a republic without it. Jefferson knew that, and he was the victim of the worst journalism ever. What else do we need? We need other public forums, museums, libraries. We need to really fund our libraries. Because that's where people who don't get to go to institutions like this learn about the world. And there are more people who don't get to go to institutions like this than do. So as a democracy, we cannot survive if we don't reinflate our public institutions that help us think that help us learn that help us agree on what is true and what is important and help us debate and deliberate about the ways forward that's the only chance we have 
We're going to be stuck with Facebook for a long time, but we might learn to live better with it if we take seriously the problems of our institutions. Thank you very much. I'm coming. Yeah, sure. I, I can hang out a little while and, and uh, uh, oh, good, we have microphones. Oh, great, hi. Hi, uh, so is there a way to bring accountability and transparency to Facebook? No, okay. for a couple of reasons. One, it's a private company. Well, it's a publicly owned company, right? Its shareholders, I would like to say for most publicly traded companies, its shareholders could actually intervene and try to reform it. That can't happen in the case of Facebook because Facebook, like Google, has a special set of stock ownership structures so that Mark Zuckerberg always owns 50% plus one. Um, so he's pretty impenetrable and, and uh, uh, unstoppable. Um, so only Mark Zuckerberg could change, decide to change things. And he is so deeply embedded in his own confidence about how this will work. And he still truly believes that if we use Facebook more and more, we can solve these problems. So we're kind of stuck. This is a little bit like the last question, but I'm desperately trying to hear you say something positive. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, uh, uh, Congress talks about trying to do some regulation and stuff. Right. That's outside the company. Is there a prayer, anything like that will happen? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, as we know, getting Congress to get both houses in line to do anything um, with deep thought is a challenge now. So I'm not optimistic about that very fact, but let's suspend my cynicism and perhaps your cynicism as well. Uh, there are two, two things I think that our government can do, Congress in one case and the executive branch in the other. Um, I think Congress should take seriously uh, creating for us data protection rights as, as individuals. So that the data that we create when we move about the world and interact with our digital materials we have some say over who gets to use it for what. And if someone wants to build a product or a service around our data, it has, th that company has to ask us explicitly for our permission to do it and explain to us in clear language what it's going to do. That clear language uh, step is really important so we don't have the 80 pages of fine print. And we don't have a, like a, um, what we have right now with all of these services that we agree to is, um, a take it or leave it situation with all of their different services. Like you can either use Facebook or not use Facebook. There's no choice that maybe I'm gonna use Facebook in the following ways, but not in these ways, right? And that would be better. Now that's exactly what Europe has introduced in the last year. Um, and we are starting to see how effective that's gonna be or how ineffective that's gonna be. We can learn a lot from Europe. Maybe it's overstepped in some ways, maybe it's underregulated in some ways, and we can do a better job than Europe if we study it. Um, I do know that our Senator Mark Warner is taking this very seriously. He is one of the more aware and, uh, and educated uh, legislators, um, and he has been deep studying the Facebook problem and the Google problem very seriously for a number of years. So there's, there's thought and work going on there in this area, and also people of both parties are really concerned about this concentration of power, which is a rare thing. It doesn't mean they will get it together to do anything, because what I'm suggesting, this data protection right, is not just going to get Facebook worried and Google worried, but it's also going to threaten Comcast, and that's pretty powerful, and it's gonna threaten um, Time Warner, and it's gonna threaten uh, any member of the Digital Marketing Association, which is a major trade group, it's gonna threaten Target, it's gonna threaten Walmart, 
Um, so they're all against what I've just proposed, too. So it's a huge political challenge to get that through. The executive branch could do a lot more about antitrust. The Federal Trade Commission wrapped Facebook on the knuckles in 2011 when it found out that Facebook was giving away all of our data to anybody who wanted to build an application on Facebook. So if you, if you played a game like Farmville or Mafia Wars or, or Words with Friends using Facebook to log in, you gave all of your friends' data to this company that created that, that game, and you didn't even know it, and your friends certainly didn't know it. But the Federal Trade Commission knew it in 2011, and they said, oh, no, Facebook, you must not do this. And they issued a consent decree, and then they never followed up to make sure Facebook would stop doing that. Facebook didn't stop doing it. It was explicit policy between 2010 and 2015 that anybody who built an application on Facebook got all of our data. One of the companies, or not companies, one of the organizations that built an app on Facebook and got all of our data was the Obama campaign in 2012. So the Obama campaign had a, a, a software platform, an application that ran on your phone for people who were volunteers who would go door, door to door. And people were asked to log in with their Facebook credentials and click yes to share their Facebook friends' data. Well, they didn't quite realize what they were getting, but soon they did. The Obama campaign had deep personal information on almost 200 million Americans. Now, almost half of them opposed Barack Obama. So think about that. The head of state of a country who controls a lot of weapons had personal data on millions of people who opposed him, right? That putting out of your mind what you think of Barack Obama, right? I voted for the guy twice. I think he believes in the rule of law. We got off lucky that he didn't want to abuse that power. But imagine having a president who doesn't care about the rule of law. I know. Think about it for a second, right? That, I mean, that should frighten us, right? If, if Barack Obama had not been someone who cared about the rule of law, had been willing to abuse that power, that's a whole lot of power, right? Somebody like Narendra Modi, someone like, someone like Rodrigo Duterte would not have held back on abusing that power. And in 2012, I was one of a number of people who kept saying, you know what, this is a problem. I, I knew that this was happening. The, the Obama campaign knew it was happening. And we were saying, look, this is a problem. Nobody should have this kind of data. And the Federal Trade Commission did nothing. And in addition, I was trying to get people, other people I know were trying to get like reporters to write about this. I tried to pitch op-eds to major newspapers. Nobody cared. Because the story they wanted to write was, look how digitally savvy the Obama campaign is. Not, look how troublesome it is that anybody should have this kind of power, which it really is a problem. Now, in 2015, Facebook shut that off, shut that program off. But not in time to stop Cambridge Analytica, a British consulting firm owned by a hedge, mysterious hedge fund billionaire named Robert Mercer um, and with Steve Bannon on the board, right? Uh, this co company, Cambridge Analytica, managed to get data on 75 million Americans by launching a personality quiz on Facebook that a lot of people took. Oh, I want to find out my personality. This is really clever. And they revealed all this information about themselves. So Cambridge Analytica had all this information on, on people. And then Cambridge Analytica went around the world telling political campaigns, hey, hire us to be our consultants. We have all this Facebook data. We can do all this elaborate targeting. Uh, and some of them believed Cambridge Analytica and spent money, like the Brexit campaign, the Leave campaign in England uh, paid for it, the Ted Cruz campaign paid for it in 2016, and then they, uh, then they went to work for the Trump campaign afterwards. But the fact is, uh, both the Cruz campaign and the Trump campaign report that Cambridge Analytica didn't actually do anything useful for them. Because at that point, 
Facebook did it, did it all. Facebook will give you the same targeting power that Cambridge Analytica claimed it would get, right? So that's why the Cambridge Analytica thing is a warning that anybody should get all that data and can use it to, to abuse us, but it really ended up not being much of a political story. Hi. Is there any way to uh, use the algorithmic amplification um, for good stuff? Yeah. Well, it like depends a on monkey what you wrench, yeah. this, this whole thing. Good, right. So look, there's stuff I like, and you might agree with me about a number of things, or you might disagree. So good stuff, yeah, totally. Um, so I happen to be uh, a big fan of the Women's March that happened right after the inauguration, and that was organized on Facebook, and algorithmic amplification helped that, right? You might not be a fan of it. You might have another thing in your life that you saw on Facebook that worked that way. Yes, there are things that we consider good stuff. That doesn't mean it's good for democracy, right? Just because it's good for my side or good for my um, team, uh, um, doesn't mean it's enhancing our ability to govern ourselves, right? That's what I mean by democracy. And I think sometimes it's real easy to, to confuse things we like and sides we support and issues we support with democracy. Um, what I mean by that is, what I mean by democracy is our ability to govern ourselves. And I think our ability to govern ourselves is, should be judged by our ability to, to, to talk and think deeply about issues that confront us. Algorithmic amplification works directly against that because um, the deep and thoughtful stuff is sometimes really boring. You know? And that's, that's, again, that's why it has to be a grown-up thing. So because, and, and look, Madison got this, right? Madison got this. Uh, um, and, and political theorists for years have gotten this. And like, our government got this. And most American citizens got this, this very idea. Left to our own devices, left to our own passions, we will pick the bag of potato chips over the kale, right? Every time. It takes thought, work, forbearance, wisdom to pick the kale, and I hate kale, right? But the, to pick the kale over the potato chips, right? And so um, then you add algorithms that are putting the potato chips in front of you constantly and kind of making you forget about the kale and you're, you're out of luck, right? Then you're gaining weight like my golden retriever. Um, and that's, uh, so that's the problem with algorithmic amplification. Um, but, but what we did over most of the last 100 years is recognizing that problem, we built ways to actually talk about things, right? We built expertise, we built the National Academies of, of Science, National Academies of Medicine, National Academy of Engineering, we built universities, right? These are not easy institutions to maintain or to, or to promote. Right? These are expensive things, and they take a lot of hard work. And, and why did we do these? We didn't do it for the football, although you know, maybe in Alabama, but we didn't really do it just for the, to have the pageantry. We did it so that we could learn to think, and we would at least have enough citizens who could help us guide our decisions. That's what I mean by democracy. And no, the algorithmic amplification totally works against that, which is why we need non-algorithmic amplification and investment in those institutions to work against it. Okay, last question. Yeah, cool. Uh, perfect segue. Okay, uh, cool. Regarding investment in those institutions, yeah. um, I think you said uh, we need to find new and better ways to fund them. Uh, should we also consider two old-fashioned mm. uh, historical ways of funding them? And I'm, I'm thinking in particular of the founder's vision for the postal system in which 
they wanted it to be subsidized to the right. point where periodicals, news magazines would be shipped for free yeah. at no charge. Uh, and I think we've lost track of the idea that the postal system itself should be subsidized. Uh, and then on the other hand, um, I don't know the exact date, perhaps you do, but I think until the mid-70s, uh, there were uh, prominent papers of record everywhere right. that were subsidized explicitly to publish public uh, records. You know, usually state capitals, but not right, always. Right, right, right. And those have dwindled. And that, but yeah. part, part of that and was to educate that, All people. that went online Yeah, because it's so much cheaper to do it. Right. right. No, exactly what happened. So, yes, uh, a lot of what we've done over the last 30 years, closer to 20 years sometimes, is rush into the thing that's most convenient and cheap. Right, because that makes sense, right? That's the potato chips over the kale, right? Immediate gratification. And we've lost uh, a lot of support for those institutions and those structures. Um, and I think we need to rethink a lot of that. So I really appreciate um, that reminder, because there are some, some old ways of doing things, right? There are, there are arguments that we've lost to time um, in our rush to make everything more convenient. Because my phone is super convenient, right? I can live half my life on it if I want. It's the operating system of my life. And that should not be good or comforting, right? The operating system of my life should be me. Instead, I let these apps guide me through my decisions and uh, give me directions and remind me of someone's birthday. And, and man, I, I should be doing better than that. I think we should all do better than that. Doesn't mean we have to give up pleasures or give up convenience, but I think we just have to be a little bit more careful and thoughtful about when convenience is worth it. And every little step toward convenience at the end results in a long way away from our ability to actually choose the good life. Thank you very much for your time. And I have books for sale. Please buy books. Thank you. On behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association, we really appreciate you coming oh, cool. out tonight. Oh, cool. Thank you very much. Uh -huh. cool. <laughs>